welcome to Objections to Objectivism, the podcast that examines the critiques and problems with Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism from a moderate point of view. I'm Patrick Shalopsky. I'm neither an objectivist nor an anti-objectivist, but I appreciate some aspects of the philosophy, and I'm learning more all the time. Please join me in doing so. Joining me today is Zach Schmidt. Zach, hey, hey Zach, thanks for coming on. It's good to be here. Great. So Zach is a student of Russian literature and a lay theologian, or so he describes himself. Uh, and Zach and I got interested in Ayn Rand and objectivism uh, out of a discussion at my house. I ha- regularly have some people over to my house to talk about deeper thinking things. I really wanted to do a evening on Ayn Rand and objectivism. And so we had it, and everyone had a great discussion, lots of great points and and objections came up, and really that was the genesis of this podcast. I wanted to share a lot of those insights with the world and also learn more about objectivism and uh, talk more with, with uh, all these smart people. So there are many who have studied objectivism far more than me, so please send in your feedback to objections to objectivism at gmail.com. That's objections to objectivism at gmail.com. So, Zach. How did you get interested in Ayn Rand? Why, did, why were you interested to come to this uh, evening at my house? Yeah, no, it's a good question, Patrick. Uh, I, before the evening of your house, I had really only engaged with Rand on a, a very, very low level. Um, I'd read a couple of her pieces, very short works by Rand. Um, and all I knew is in high school, I was a big fan. Uh, I admired her quite a bit. I, I considered myself Randian in my philosophy. Um, but. That was more on the political side. Getting into this discussion, especially as we, we went through it, even at that salon discussion at your house, um, some of the work that she did with objectivism, I, I had not, I don't know, I didn't know how much she had really fleshed it out, how deep she had gotten into it. Um, so my experience with Rand before this was mostly on that political side. So to see her kind of dive into philosophy was, was pretty interesting. Okay, great. And you added a lot to that evening. so. Um, I think you'll add a lot to this podcast as well. So you brought up three objections, three critiques of Ayn Rand um, that you wanted to talk about, and I I think they're great, so let's get into that. Um, Rand said that that man, that is every man, is an end in himself. But you're doubting whether a man can truly know himself, whether man can realize what his end is and what what he is. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Is that a fair characterization of this? Objection? I think Rand is very optimistic about how she views man and how man views himself. Um, She kind of comes up with this idea that you can fully know yourself and understand yourself and the things that that you want and need to do through through reason. And she portrays this point with the understanding that that man can eventually get to that point. But the philosopher Walker Percy um, had quite a bit to say on that in his his, uh, book, Lost in the Cosmos, which he calls the last self-help book. He says, one of the peculiar ironies of being a human self in the cosmos, a stranger approaching you in the street will in a second's glance see you whole, size you up, place you in a way in which you cannot and never will, even though you have spent a lifetime with yourself, live in the century of the self, and therefore ought to know yourself best of all. He goes on later to say that we know more about the Andromeda galaxy than we know about ourselves. We're able to quantify it more clearly. And I think Percy, via human experience, has the, the more honest interpretation, I think. I think most people would say 
when asked if they know themselves that they, they don't, or at least that they still have much to learn. And, and I'm not saying that Rand gets to a point where she says, you know, you'll never learn more about yourself. She seems to approach it in the sense that you can, through reason, know yourself to such a point that you can come up with a morality, with an ethic that somehow interacts with others in a way that, that is in your own self-interest, but also in some way respects their own boundaries. So what you're saying about Percy is very much in contrast to Rand, I think. I, I definitely see that right away, that Rand is, it's almost an axiom, a assumption she makes without even justifying it, that man can know himself, that an individual can know that he or she is capable of doing certain things, of knowing what his or her interests are, what his or her ambitions are, and ultimately what his or her values are. Right, because objectivism is, is yes, an end to happiness. Like many philosophers, Rand wants man to be happy. The way we do that is through reason and self-esteem, accomplishing a purpose. And so, if we have uh, a purpose and self-esteem, we can use reason to accomplish it. But I think what you're saying is. How are we to know that what our purpose is? How are we to have that self-esteem enough to get there? Is that fair? I would think that's very fair. Yeah, Th this idea of there, there being something outside of yourself that you strive for, which I think, if asked, most people when describing what their purpose in life is would point to something outside of themselves. My purpose is to support my family. My purpose is to serve the Lord, whatever it might be. It's always going to be something or usually going to be something outside of themselves. And that's what drives them, not their own self-interest. Yeah, and that's what Rand was fundamentally disagreeing with. She wanted us to find a purpose in ourselves, not outside ourselves. In fact, if we're living out a purpose outside ourselves, it can only be because we value it. We see a a supreme value in it, just like Dominique in The Fountainhead eventually became supremely, saw supreme value in Howard Rourke. So also that we could indeed live for something outside of ourselves, but only because it suits us, only because it's in effect accomplishing something for ourselves, right? And so, yeah, it, it, that is a little hard for me to grasp onto and say, Yes, that's the be-all and end-all. I appreciate that as a important thing, but is it is it totally invalid? I think Rand would say it is invalid and, and indeed evil to say I'm going to live for something outside of myself. So you mentioned um, serving the Lord, and I know that's because you're a Christian. Is that for you what what you live for? Is that uh, the something that's outside of yourself that you're talking about? Yeah. Yes, I think so. I think for two reasons. When we're talking about Percy and his, this, this concept of man not being able to know himself or his own uh, interests or desires to, to, any, to any specific scale, I think that what he ultimately points to at the end, and he does it very subtly, um, is this idea that we can't know ourselves, but something outside of us can know us. And it's by the serving of that that we are able to, to see ourselves in a, not only a different light, but in a, in a more nuanced way, right? We're able to see the, the specifics of who we are and who we were made to be. Um, because ultimately, if we are created by something, then there is something outside of ourselves that we need to look to. Yeah, and Rand just dismisses that as mysticism, yeah. right? And so, I mean, this is an objection that we're not getting into in this episode, but I'm sure we will at some point if I continue these, these podcasts that uh, what is your justification for just dismissing the notion of God outright, like Rand does. 
um, maybe too yeah. too far for this podcast. Let me ask this: whether whether that thing outside of ourselves is God or something else, Rand would say it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if God actually exists or not, because then you're serving someone outside of yourself. In effect, you're making yourself a slave. You're surrendering your own individuality. You're surrendering your own uh, desires and purpose. You are an end in yourself. You are the thing that exists and thus should exist and must enhance its own existence. How can you discard your own existence is what Rand would say you're doing by serving something outside yourself. Um, Humans have always looked to a cause, to a person, to... Um, to an idea that they serve, right? And even in the Randian philosophy, you are still a slave. It's just you're a slave to yourself, to your own reason. And how, you are bound to that. Okay, let me jump in there. How, how can I be a slave to myself? That's, not, that's the antithesis of Rand's slavery, right? So she wants me to live for myself because anything else is slavery. But how, how can you justify that, that too is slavery if I'm living for myself? I think when you live for yourself above all, you neglect everything around you. There's freedom in living for community and living for others. And in Rand's philosophy, you're in many ways not free to do that. You're not free to sacrifice yourself and your own desires and hopes for the the sake of another. You're in some ways bound to this idea of your wills, your desires are the, the, the key. I think that does limit us. It limits our our capacity as human beings and what we are capable of. All right. Well, let's jump into that concept. You're saying it. It's freeing to serve others in addition to yourself. So, what is that notion? What freedom to me means? I'm able to choose one thing or choose another. I'm able to um, pick the best option. And how? So, how is it freeing? Freeing when I'm constrained from picking the best option in that I'm serving someone else. It's freeing us to be a part of something greater than ourselves. I think when we're, we're in, in Rand's concept, we are constrained to our own self-interest and the own th- our own things that, that we want to accomplish. And when every individual is enslaved to that, there's no opportunity for community. And when there's no opportunity for community, we have in some ways limited ourselves because the human self is most fully alive when it is around others. People in isolation, are not successful, and if they were, there'd be no way to measure it by. Mm-hmm. So I think that the, their human society has always brought something out in, in the individual that has made him either greater or lesser. Uh, I think there that you're getting at a point that's maybe more important to me is that you're right. I, I think humans are better off when they're functioning in a society and even go so far as to say, this is the part that I don't think Rand would disagree with that. In fact, her philosophy, all of her ethics, is based on living in a civilization. It's not based on in prehistoric, non-civilized living, and it's not based on isolation. But it's for a civilization. Where I think Rand would disagree with you and perhaps with me too is that I can serve society to an extent and better parts of me will come out. Better ambitions will come out. Uh, my errors will be corrected. Not because I'm a slave to society, but more because that's just one additional input into my calculus of how I make decisions. Uh, it's an additional influence on me and who I am. So, yes, for Rand, it's abhorrent to be a product of one society. Instead, you need to be product of oneself. What if we just achieved a better balance of those two? Why do we have to totally excise the 
society from our influence. Are you saying that or are you saying something stronger than that? I think that Rand's logical conclusion in some ways is a departure from society or at least society as we know it, mm -hmm. right? She distances the individual from those around him in such a way that a society of, of such individuals wouldn't look much like society at all. Um, and, and that's where I think the, the issue comes up. I, I don't think man is meant to live alone. I think even in, in Rand's philosophy, there is an involvement of others, but the others are either their own free entities or in some ways they're for you to promote yourself. And I think in a society like that, there's, there's no real structure and there's no real opportunity for things beyond selfishness, which I think is always a detriment, not only to society, but to the individual. Okay, there's a lot of places there I could jump off of. Off of. Let me pick one. Man was meant to live together. Man was meant to live in society. How does that imply that society should then trump the individual's interests? Or, or doesn't it, and that's not what you're saying? In other words, in a society, can I live in a collective or even a, a tribe or a community, yet still not become a slave to others? Maybe you're just objecting to Ayn Rand's extremism, what you may see as extremism, I certainly see it as, as an extreme position, that there is no place for society to overrule my will. Correct. Okay. Yes. I, I think that, that society in, in some ways plays such a role. We can be free agents within that society, and I think that's really what creates a, a bold and moving society. Um, and interestingly, looking at Russian literature, when we talk about the community, the community is not a loss of the individual. The community is the individual working with other individuals for a greater purpose and cause. Okay. And you wanted to touch on Russian lit literature because you've studied it a lot. And so would you consider Ayn Rand to be Russian literature? For those who don't know, Rand was born in Russia, right? Yes, and she was. And educated there. Yeah, Rand was, was born in, uh, in St. Petersburg in 1905. It was in Imperial Russia. She kind of grew up in the society that was, was kind of transforming in Russia. It was kind of from the old serf society to this, this new, more European intellectual class. And, and it's funny, she grows up in St. Petersburg, which is considered to be Russia's European city, the one European city. And so she has all these influences that are external to herself that are very non-Russian. Um, so when she grows up and she goes to university and she eventually comes to America, she winds up essentially completely distancing herself from Russia, Russian culture and Russian literature. In fact, when talking about Solzhenitsyn, and Solzhenitsyn was a, a Russian author who left Russia very, in a very uh, similar time frame to when Rand did. Um, and they both hated communism and they both opposed it to the, the highest order. Um, you, he would be what would be considered to be a very close comparison to Rand. And yet, at the, the same time, she not only distanced herself from him, but called him a Slavophile and mm -hmm. said that his, his theology was something that she did not want a part of. She didn't want to get down into the soup of his theology, um, which is where someone would drown. And I think the, the biggest part of where she rejects Russian culture is in what she calls its collectivist and mystical elements. Um, and if you look at Russian literature throughout all time, both of those things are deeply intertwined with it. Okay, whereas Solzhenitsyn may have... Uh, embraced one or both of those? I, I'm fairly ignorant of Solzhenitsyn, so... Solzhenitsyn uh, was, he, he has the, the famous Nobel lecture where he talks about art's role in overcoming the lies of oppression, 
right? And he's really speaking in a lot of ways with his experience with the, the communist dictatorship that kind of developed in Russia um, and how his art spoke out against it in a way that was, was quiet and yet forceful in its, its message. And he's saying that, that that is the only true opposition to totalitarianism, but also to lies in general. Okay. So um, he, he goes on this idea that, that there is something outside of us that has given us this concept of art, of literature even, um, that by which we, we are able to dispel darkness. Rand, of course, doesn't like any of that, and she throws it out, discards Solzhenitsyn as a, as a friend or companion. Okay, so Solzhenitsyn was still opposed to collectivism, but allowed for some influence, whereas Rand was trying to shut out most or perhaps all influence of the collective to override the will of an individual. Correct, yes. You know, Solzhenitsyn, when he came out, and I don't want to get too far into him because it's not his episode, um, but he, he mentions, quoting Dostoevsky, that the, the line between good and evil doesn't divide societies or classes, it divides the individual. And I think that's one of the, 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 lar- the, the biggest differences between him and Rand. It's seemingly with, with Rand, it divides at least ideas more than it divides the individual. Uh, one more thought on, on this topic. So Rand makes the point that, and I've really appreciated this about Rand, that there is no such person, no such entity as the collective or society or others or the common good, right? Anytime I allow society's views or the influence of others to override me, I'm reacting to someone's or several someone's will, right? I'm not react. There's no such thing as the will of society. It's only expressed by individuals or several individuals working together or perhaps not working together, right? Perhaps they're just disparate individuals that all influence me in some measure. So when we say it's for the good, it's for the common good that you um, pay your taxes. We're actually saying, well, a bunch of people or a small group of people have decided it's for the common good. What, however they made that decision is irrelevant. That has to override your judgment. If I'm characterizing it right, that's what Rand would push and say, there's really no such thing as society overriding. Rand says there's no such thing as society, that if I allow society to override my will, if I discard my selfishness for the good of others, I'm really discarding my selfishness not for the good of others per se, but for that which someone has said is the good of others by someone, some other individual or some other small group's will. Can I really know myself well and really I'm just subverting myself to a few in any case? Yeah, I, I think Rand ultimately in, in that point and in several others fundamentally misunderstands human nature. Even society or this idea of common good, um, even if it is made up of individuals, there are still collectives of individuals who are coming up with these ideas and purport- purporting these ideas. I think the great thinkers, the great movers, the great leaders throughout history have not been there for their own individual good. Some of them may have been. But I think overall, they have in some ways connected with the mass, with the people around them, with that collective. So I think that... So did they connect with the people around them by connecting with key individuals? You're saying somehow they, they connected with the culture, they connected with a mass. The, no single individual was important because they connected with everybody or, or a large group. I don't think if we had single individuals who were running around 
um, completely as their own free agents, unaffected by society, we would have such a thing as culture, right? Uh, I, I think that, that culture is in a lot of ways a creation of the, the collective interacting with individuals, but also in individual experiences that are parallel to one another. If I sim- grossly simplify what you're saying, we need both individual will and the collective to improve us, and, and one plays off the other, and we can't totally discard one or the other. That is correct, yeah. yeah. I, I think that, that they have to exist if we're going to have a, a thriving and, and prosperous society in terms of, of human culture, but also human liberty. Ah, but Rand would say, who cares about thriving and prosperous society? What about a thriving and prosperous people? I think that the, the, the two are inseparable, right? In order to have a, a yeah. thriving and prosperous individual, there has to be thriving and prosperous individuals around them. Right? And I think she would agree with that. Right, but I, I think that the, the, the way that, that those individuals are drawn together is through this this general cultural experience. That's why when we see in certain societies, there kind of becomes these consistent ethics. Right, so in American society, we have kind of this Judeo-Christian ethic, but if we were to go to a tribe in Africa, it wouldn't necessarily have that. There's still individuals in both groups. There's still indiv- like there's 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 still free agents that operate within those two groups, and yet their ethics come together differently because of the groups that surround them. Okay. Yeah, and I can see that totally. Now, this is let, let me just state what I'm where I'm at today. I think what you're saying is undeniable. You can't you can't not have society have an influence on you. I can't avoid that. But what I can do is I can argue and discuss and f- try to figure out to the best of my ability to what degree society should influence me. And I wish the discussion was more there because I think this, this notion that we just discard society's influence um, except where we find it selfishly valuable is, is anathema to most people. It's, it's just beyond the pale and you can't get past that. I would rather advocate for more individualism, something closer to Rand, without being dogmatic about exactly what Rand said in objectivism. Is that where you're at, or maybe you don't go that far either? I, I, would, I would agree with that overall, okay. yeah. Very good. All right, I'll leave it at that. Thanks for coming on the show, and I really appreciate all your insights, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. All right. So thank you for listening. Please send in your feedback to objections to objectivism at gmail.com. <laughs>